Welcome to the Family Biz Show, where we dive deep into the fascinating world of family-owned businesses. I'm your host, Michael Columbus, and in each episode, we'll bring you inspiring stories, practical insights, and expert advice from successful family business owners and industry thought leaders. Hidden in this grandparent-grandchild philanthropy and in the process is actually young children learning to ask for something in a very safe environment. This is step-by-step, paint-by-numbers, Get your strategy mapped out system. Join us on this journey as we uncover the unique challenges and opportunities of running a family business. The best part about it is that the guys in the field didn't treat me as the owner's son. I was just another guy. But I think what's super unique about our story, we lost the business and we got it back. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's dive right into the next episode of The Family Biz Show. Welcome, everybody, to the Family Biz Show. I am your host, Michael Columbus, with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. Welcome. Um, today, we've got a really great show with you for you with Janice Jucker from Three Brothers Bakery. You're in Houston, Texas. Did I get that right? In Houston, Texas. Um, and I will tell you, do not go to their website um, because you will want to order stuff right away. Go to uh, our website. Go to, go to the website. <laughs> And, and and fill your Thanksgiving. I mean, not for nothing, but the I don't think I've ever seen the uh, turkey. Um, you know, it, it's a, is that a cake? Is that a apple? What is it? Trumpet apple, the three pies and three cakes. That one. Oh, delicious looking. Delicious. The big, big one, right? Yeah, that's awesome. So. Welcome, Janice. I'm really excited to talk. And I've gone through your website and looking at the the history and such a rich history that the company has. Um, really excited for the wisdom and things that you share with us today. So, okay, we have a history of and just uh, we'd like to share what was your journey into the family business. Some people. You know, their journey is, you know, immediately uh, every day. That's all I've ever done. And for other people, it was, you know, different than that. So share your journey about how you became part of the family business. Okay. And at some point, I want to give the history of the family business. Of course, 100%. So my journey, I, uh, my, well, I married a guy with a lot of dough, just the wrong kind, right? Uh so I actually, so I moved to Houston 26 years ago when I got married and my last uh, job where I worked for someone else, I went to work for Lucent Technologies and Avaya and I did, uh, I sold multi-million dollar communication systems. Okay. And I have a bachelor's in social work and a master's in consumer affairs. And so um. My last group of customers was the oil patch. And that included ExxonMobil, ConocoPhillips, Chevron, Shell, you know, the whole gamut here. But everyone knew once you got ExxonMobil, that was it. That was your last year because we had no contract with them. And so you couldn't sell anything. <laughs> so um, Katrina happened in 2005 and everybody we were an evacuation place for the people from New Orleans. I don't know if you remember that. It was like the last, the Astrodome's last hurrah. Okay. And I wanted to do something to help them. 
so we were down there um, before any of the people got there, before there was a cot in the Astrodome. And I ended up becoming the de facto CIO of that operation. And we put together all the communication for people to find their families. So that was phones, internet, you know, they set up computers to help people. If someone found their family, they rang a cowbell. It was really, it was a great feeling. And to see some of the reunions was amazing. And so I didn't make my quota because <laughs> I, my, my customer base was the oil patch and they'd been hit by Katrina and it was the end of my sales year and they weren't buying. So I got the boot. <laughs> so um, so then our accountant said, I think it's okay. I think now you can go work in the family business. And I thought, oh, that'll give me freedom of time and maybe, you know, a little freedom of money can do all my volunteer work that I like to do. And boy, did I learn a valuable lesson. That is not the way owning your business works, right? Everyone who owns a business knows it's not glamorous and it's a lot of hard work. And um, <clears throat> so then, well, so that's how I ended up in the business. I'll leave it at that. No, I love it. So yours is, you know, very non-traditional. Your background was way diverse compared to what you're doing today, but I'm positive that that experience and that level of experience you were able to share with the company and add value, you know, the moment you walked in the door because other people that worked there didn't have that background. <laughs> so it was so funny. So the, can I just tell you the family history real quick? And then I'm going to, yeah. all right, yeah. you're going to edit all this way. Let me just tell you. So the three brothers, they were from Poland and uh, one of the brothers didn't like to even talk to people. So he did the midnight shift. And then two of the brothers were on during the day and one person told me that they would go, their dad or somebody would take them every Sunday to Three Brothers Bakery to watch the show. What was the show? The show was my father-in-law and his brother yelling at each other in Polish. And then they would turn around and yell at the customers in English. <laughs> and that was the show. So I think one of the first things I brought was the concept of customer service. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was not a part of Three Brothers Bakery. Um, not so much, I would say. There was a lot of yelling going on at Three Brothers Bakery when I got there. <laughs> That's funny. That's very funny. So like dive dive deeper into that. When was you know, when was Three Brothers founded? How long ago are we talking about? And what did they, you know, what would what did they start with and what's different from where they started to where you are today? So let's just go back about 200 years. And that's when the family began baking in Chanaf, Poland. And uh, it was, I envision it as a shtetl, as a village. I don't know if it was. It, they baked in a building that Napoleon once slept in. So it had to have been a pretty old building. And um, I think they lived maybe above the bakery or something. I'm not really sure. And they baked continuously until my father-in-law, who had been the fourth generation, he worked in the bakery. There was a baker strike when he was 10. And he and his twin brother did go to work in the bakery. And I think in some ways that might have saved their lives um, 
because the bakery, they baked continuously until the Nazis came and took the bakery and then the family. Uh, but the flour sacks were 100, I'm saying 100 pounds, but something similar in kilos. It, well, you had to be a strong man to lift that. And so I think that's why the baking business was so populated by men for so long. So anyway, they not, the Nazis come, <clears throat> they take the family. Um, there are things that went on before the family gets taken, and we could do a whole session just on this story. But their older sister saved the three brothers. And I'm giving a talk to a professional women's group tomorrow, and they have a table talk that, and I got to pick the topic. And I said, are you, the topic is, are you an upstander or a bystander? How brave are you? And this, I came up with this before October 7th, before the Israel uh, Hamas war broke up. And she was so brave. Her name was Aunt Jenny and she, like they moved everyone into rooms and not necessarily with your family. So she's living in a room <clears throat> with maybe 10 other people and the SS or Nazis or the police of the area come banging on the door. And she says, we have to open the door. Nobody wants to open the door. And she says, we have to, because so-and-so didn't open it yesterday and she was killed. So she went and opened the door and they took her. She ends up in jail, you know, for a few days and then they let her out. Um, but fast forward to when they're in the camps, she married the head Jew in the camp. So every camp had like, think if you, I'm showing my age, but there was a show called Hogan's Heroes. Sure. <laughs> and there's a lead, a, a lead uh, military person interfacing with the Germans and Hogan's Heroes. Well, they had a lead Jew that interfaced with the Germans in all the camps. She married the head Jew in that camp. That gave her a plum job of working in the office and the Nazis kept meticulous records. And how she did this, I have no idea. She found her three brothers at different camps and had them transported to the camp she was in. Wow. And so two of them were on death's door. And that, so she and my father-in-law, I wouldn't say nurse them back to health. I would say nurse them back to survival. And if she hadn't done that, for sure, probably two of them would have died. This woman was so brave. And she is one of my idols. That's amazing. And so they make their way. She comes to Houston first, and then the three brothers follow. And, um, you know, they didn't speak English. They knew how to bake. So what do they do? They open a bakery, three brothers bakery. They're like really top in the marketing department and uh but it, it's a, it's actually a good name because there were three brothers and it's a bakery and so when you you know what it is right right i hate people that make a business you're a business coach make a business and they call it um i don't know i'm trying to look around for you know it's dog dogsmith and what they're doing is ironwork or something you know what i mean it's just you don't 100%. know what it is so um, anyway, they come here in 1949, they start Three Brothers Bakery, it will be 75 May 8th. And May 8th is a memorable date because that was the date of liberation. And my father-in-law, he was, 
in charge of waking up everyone in the camp he was at by that point they had been split this is the they got split up the last year so he's in this camp of a thousand people and he's in charge of waking everyone up and this is without an alarm clock and to the to the day he died he really had a hard time sleeping because of that and he woke up one morning he overslept and they lined everybody up for roll call and it was a cold, wet day. And they said, you're going to roll around up and down the line until I tell you to stop. And if you stop before I tell you to stop, we're going to shoot someone. So he did it for an hour. But anyway, so one morning he wakes up and he sees the Germans are gone. The fence is not electrified. So he went and found some wire cutters and he cut the the gate open and he kissed the ground and he was the first one in his camp to take that first breath of freedom. And it's, and that was on the 8th. And so that's an important date for us. And then, um, so now my husband, he's in the bakery, he's fifth generation. And then we don't have a sixth generation. He has, a, I, I have two bonus sons. So one is a veterinarian and one is a school teacher, him and his wife. And so for us, the best thing we can do for them would be to build the business, sell it, hopefully not spend all the money and leave something to them, right? <laughs> At least not be a burden to them. Sure. So that's kind of what our plan is too. And I don't remember if I've answered your question or not. No, you gave you gave us a, a big history of the of the business. When they started the business, you know, 75 years ago, 74 years ago, what were they baking? What were the, what were the special, do you, do you, you know, do have you- They brought bagels to Houston. There you go. There were no bagels in Houston until three brothers and Bialis until three brothers showed up. And then, you know, they did a lot of the Eastern European things. So they did babkas, strudels, the rye breads, challah, which is an egg bread, um, all of those kinds of things. And then they also added in the, the extra sweet things that we Americans like, because they didn't make sweets like that in Poland. Right. Uh, um, and it's interesting because my family's comes from, we say we're Russia, it was really Ukraine where my family was from. And our regula is different than their the Polish regula. I didn't know what it was when I saw it. I'd never seen anything like that before. And when they told me that, I was like, ah, no, that's not regular. Regular looks like more like a croissant, you know, and it's got nuts and stuff. So they're different. I thought that was interesting. That's very cool. Today, when you look at, you know, the business today, what are some of the things that, you know, the three brothers might look and say, you're doing what? And and, and that's, you know, you're everything. <laughs> everything. Um, I've even said one day I'm going to sit down. I have, we have some old PLs. I don't have them back to 1949, but I have them, I think around 1960, I think I have one or two. And I want to compare the chart of accounts to see how many more things we have to pay for that they didn't pay for. And they put through college seven kids and one did like half of it so seven and a half kids went to college 
I mean, there's no way we could do that today. And uh, family businesses, as you bring more people in, uh, as you know, you have to grow. And here they were, three brothers, and they had these kids, and they took care, they were able to take care of them. I mean, my sister-in-law did a semester at sea and all that. And the margins now are so tiny. You just can't do that. Everything is different. And I think, you know, the the costs are just out of this world, especially when you talk about college and some of the other things. And we, and we have to pay for cell phones and computers and internet. And there's just more things that we have to take care of that it, like when life, compared to when life was simpler. Right. That's right. Yeah. Um, talk about, so who's in the business today family-wise? Just my husband and I are in the business today. Okay. And we, and so in 2009, so we've been hit by four floods, a fire, hurricane, pandemic, and freeze. We're very good at disaster recovery. <laughs> and uh, we call ourselves the king and queen of disasters. And we never want to be dethroned because that means someone's worse off than we are. Right. Anyway, so after one of the disasters, which was Hurricane Ike, we were closed for nine months. The tornado came down our main street and probably, uh, we think it was a tornado because many roofs were torn off. And um, anyway, we were at a dinner and we're standing at the valet. And this guy says to me, he's a business coach, which we didn't even know what that was. And, you know, can I come talk to you? <clears throat> My husband said, Sure, you can come talk to us, but we're not buying anything from you. But if you want to waste your time, knock yourself out. <laughs> well, we did. We bought. And that was the best money we ever spent. We learned two incredibly valuable lessons. Work on, not in your business. And we are terrible managers, my husband and I. So we took the money that we were paying the coach and uh, put it. we hired someone to run the business. And he said he would pay for anyone he brought on and he's made good on that. And because of that, we grew. So now we've got, instead of one store in the production facility in the one place, we have three more remote stores. So we have a total of four stores. Okay. And um, they really developed our pecan pie business so we could ship. So uh, that's an interesting story. In 2010, Country Living named our pecan pie, the best mail order pecan pie America has to offer. Here's one right here. Nice. And, um, you know, I thought we could maybe do something with this. And we put together a marketing campaign. We sent it to media. And when it happened, this is a whole nother long story. I won't tell you unless you want to do another session. But when it happened, we made maybe 200 pies total all year. Okay. Of all types. And when we won that one, I said, well, let's see what we can do with this. Cause you can ship a pecan pie really easily and it holds and it stays even for a couple of weeks. If like the person's out of town, that it, it'll still be good when they get back, if they're not gone for six months or whatever. And um, so now we fill up FedEx trucks with these pies. And if we hadn't had the business coach, <clears throat> we wouldn't have hired our GM, whose last name is Baker, ironically. And none of this would have happened. 
And it was the best thing. And so now like we've moved all of our pay and everything below the line. So if we were to sell the business, that's just automatic profit. We've now uh, hired a marketing person and a content creator. So that was the only kind of day-to-day job I still have. It's not even day-to-day is PR. I work with them. I'm the one that works with media and anyone, you know, if we sold the business, they would have somebody do that. And, um, and then I do strategy, money, insurance, um, those types of things. And then my husband, he, he was tied to the mixing bench. I mean, we couldn't go anywhere. And he ends up in the hospital one night, one time, and we were out of cake mix. So we were scratch and you don't want anyone to know your recipe. So he would mix the dry ingredients all in one bucket. And then the bakers would add the eggs and what all the wet stuff. Well, now he's in the hospital. What are you going to do? And he wouldn't even tell, you know, the people we had hired who are running the business, he wouldn't tell them. And it was like, you're going to have to tell them, man. You know, you're going to have to give out the family secrets. This is, and the business coach, his name was Doug. He's like, Bobby, no one's going to make a bakery from your chocolate chip recipe. Okay. It's just not going to happen. Let them have the recipes, let them have that autonomy and it will free you from this mixing bench. And that was the truth. And so we keep the people that run the business, they do the dry mix still. We've looked at getting the mix made for us, but we just haven't yet. And uh, our gingerbread, we make gingerbread every day of the year and it's really good. And so that's another secret recipe that we have that only a few people know now. Nice. When you started, let's talk about that for a second. When, when you, before the, before the business coach, what was life like for you? And then revenues and that kind of stuff. I mean, generally speaking. Um, and then, you know, what were the differences and how long did you work with the, the coach before it really started to kick in for you? So um, we were just one location. <clears throat> they had had two other locations. And then when I came on board, we had someone that helped us that was smart and was a CFO of a big company. And we were his little hobby. And He's like, you're losing money on these stores. So we closed them. So we were down to one when the hurricane hit, which was a blessing. And um, I, I have to tell your listeners too, the biggest lesson of that hurricane is read your policies, your insurance policies now. Get whatever insurance you can afford at the lowest deductible. And make sure you read that book because they give you a book and it's, you know, this thick, double, you know, front and back pages. And it's better than sleeping pills. Just read the book. You'll never need sleeping pills again. (laughs) But when we had Ike, I pulled that book out afterwards. Well, luckily we had an agent that really took care of us. We had walked in and said, um, so-and-so had a fire. They were closed 12 months. They rebuilt, they paid their people. That's what I want. That's what, that was all I said. And I got this book. Oh my God. So Ike was like a, uh, $1.2 million claim. You know, and we were closed. 
for nine months. So we only paid of our money. Um, someone's calling me. Hold on a second. I don't know how to. I don't know where you went now. Um, we only paid of our money fifty thousand wow. dollars. I did have to get an SBA disaster loan, but uh, we paid that back. It was like a half a million. We paid it back in about five years because this tied to insurance and stuff. Yep. Um, and I can do a whole session. I do talks on disasters and insurance. So, but I really want your clients, listeners, whatever, read your policy. And that goes for your home policy as well. And then also make sure you have flood insurance. I don't care where you live, get flood insurance. If you're in a place where it doesn't really flood, it's so cheap. Right. Ours got up to $38,000 for this one location, our flood insurance. And then they came out with new maps and we thought for sure it was going to get even higher. And for some reason it went down to $9,000. I don't even understand that, but I'm not complaining. That's what was the question? No, no, no. I wanted to comment on what you just said, because I do think what you said is super important is if you don't understand in plain English what's in that book, you know, you should be working with a broker um, that can help you with that. And I happen to be on the board of directors of a small co-op um, property casualty company, you know, insurance company. And we, you know, I can tell you that through the years of doing this, it's been over 10 years for me, what, you know, what used to be the norm is not the norm anymore. And whether things are happening differently than they used to happen and, you know, and disasters are happening at different levels than, than they used to happen. Um, for us being in the Northeast, you know, we have snowstorms and, you know, hailstorms and, you know, we, we've had some tornadoes and windstorms that just are not the same. We've also seen an uptick in just fires. And I think part of that is because, um, you know, we built these houses, we built these businesses and it was different codes, you know, back in the day. And we might have some areas that are not up to code the way that they should be. Um, and so I, I do think it's really important that you have those, your limits looked at, have, you know, think about perils that you might not have thought about. I really want to say thank you for bringing that up. Um, I'm a, can I just add, get yeah. the lowest deductible that you can afford, because when you have a disaster, you have a cash crunch. Yeah. And I'm talking, I assume on personal too, but I'm talking about business. And the most important thing that you can do to make sure you recover and you're also the financial security is pay your employees. And so you have to have cash to pay your employees. You have to have cash in the bank. You cannot put that on a credit card. You'd be surprised how many people did not know that. <laughs> and so when we have disasters, we put everything we can on credit card. And then we only use the cash to pay our people. And the like, maybe you go to an individual to buy a sheet or whatever they want cash. So um, that's how we do it. And there's a, if you ever want to do a thing on how to recover from a disaster, I can do that with you for your listeners because there's we have a four-part process and it works and we put it in play with the pandemic as well and it works so I appreciate that and uh Chris you know I'm going to tell my producer to take notes of that and I think that might be a really wonderful episode on the personal side I want to hit that real quick um 
you know, again, I think it's working with the right broker that looks at your big picture, the net worth of the family, the net worth of your home, your autos, the the business, and and, and is very comprehensive in that look. Um, you know, I know when you're, you know, 18 years old and 17 years, you're uh, 22 years old, you're looking for the cheapest, whatever it is, and the highest deductible, because it's just like, we're just trying to drive it down. But as a business owner, you're right, it's time to start thinking about those deductibles differently, and to think about the coverage on your auto and your home differently. Cheapest is not always best. And then to always ensure that you've got an umbrella policy. Um, and I think a lot of people don't realize how inexpensive an umbrella policy can be because that first, you know, million dollars of coverage is, you know, $700 a year to $1,300 a year, depending on where you live. But the additional, you know, second and third and fourth and fifth million dollars of coverage is much less expensive. And so you know, my rule of thumb that I, that I try to teach people is just take your net worth and your umbrella policy policy should be one and a half times your net worth. That'll cover you for everything. And, you know, and then some, and if your net worth is, um, you might get to a point where, you know, in this day and age, we're finding that when people are asking for $10 million of coverage, they're not always able to get it. So you're going to be looking to say, get as much as you can. This is really, um, interesting my agent first of all i'd just like to say sometimes they call me for advice on how to get paid because i'm really good at getting paid from the insurers um she was telling me that some of her clients could not get full coverage yeah and they have to go and maybe get it from a couple of places but he, she has one that has like an apartment or storage something big and they could not get enough coverage. And then if you have a loan, you're out of uh, the, you know, you have covenants that you're supposed to abide by and you're out of sync with that, I guess is a, the best way to put it. 100%. Yeah. And so it's, to your point, it's you really look at those things. Those are things that, you know, people don't look at. They put them to the back burner because they're working in the business so much. And that is one of those work on the business moments to say, where do we stand? You know, what is our business disaster policy? What does this look like business continuity process? So, and as I mentioned, read your policy and hopefully you don't get hit by disasters. Okay. But we kind of go on the assumption we will. And I've gotten just by knowing my policy an extra $200,000. Um, two, you know, two different disasters, a hundred thousand each. One of them was Hurricane Harvey, which was a flood. But uh, I'm probably one of probably only one percent who got some business interruption for that. NFIP, National Flood Insurance Program, does not pay for business interruption. Um, but we had power outage. If you have anybody who has a food business, make sure you have spoilage coverage at the lowest level is fine. Because once you have spoilage, you have a covered cause of loss and then everything will kick in. And for the flood, uh, they said, well, we don't, you know, that was a flood. And I said, well, we had uh, the power went out because of overhead wireline failure. And they said, well, if the substation flooded, then you can't have it. And the substation didn't flood, I found out. So I got it. But 
And he was telling me I couldn't have it. And so I have my book out and I'm like, okay, Mr. Adjuster, I'm just, can you tell me what page that's on that says, I don't get this? Cause I'm not seeing it here. And I've done that twice now. And I've ended up with $200,000. So read the policies, home and business. All right. I'm going to flip, I'm going to change gears for us just a little bit. The transition from the three brothers to today, what did that, what, how did that transpire? What, what worked really well? What didn't work so well? So the three brothers incorporated in 1960, they did do one good thing. I mean, they did a lot of good things, but not in the transition department. <laughs> and so uh, they did a buy-sell agreement. Okay. So that meant that the owners of the business have first option to buy anyone out. So that was good that they did that. We could write a book on how to do it right and how to do it wrong because we've had both experiences sadly part of the family we don't even talk to anymore because it did not go well um i'm i did this program called goldman sachs Ten Thousand small businesses sure. and um you know they teach small businesses like ours and this is not how they describe it how to be real businesses <laughs> And it's like a recipe, they have different modules and they have a recipe, you know, recipe for success, basically. And so I went to an event they had and a woman who teaches negotiations in the program, she spoke to a big auditorium full of us. And she said, her name's Maury, oh God, I'm going to ruin her last name, Tapahur, she does negotiations like for the NFL. I mean, she really knows her stuff. And I think she teaches at Northwestern also. And afterwards, I said to her, yeah, we're trying to finish buying out the family. And this was an aunt. And she had the last little bit. And I said, I would like to hire you to help me. And not to do the negotiations, but just help me. And she said, I'll help you, but you can't hire me. I would never charge anyone that has gone through this program. I thought that was so nice. But one of the things she said was in every negotiation, there is something that has nothing to do with money and you have to figure out what it is. And so I came home with that in my mind and you know, on the plane, I was thinking about it and I finally figured out it's baked goods. Aunt Anna Stell wanted to make sure she would get her baked goods and her children would, and her grandchildren would have wedding cakes from us. And so we were working with one of the daughters and her husbands while we were doing this buyout thing. And, and we put a sentence in there about the baked goods. No, that wasn't enough. Okay. So we put two sentences in, not enough. Three, not enough. We have a whole addendum on baked goods. That's what it is. And so then uh, one of her other daughters, her husband was going to buy a company and he was having a hard time <clears throat> getting it closed, I think. And so he was flying out to California and it was a hundred year old company. And I said, you know, you need to figure out what that thing that has nothing to do with money is. And I had a feeling it was the legacy and I was right. I And he came back and he said, he wanted to make sure that the 
the history and that rich history of a hundred years didn't get thrown under the bus. Thank you for sharing that. And you, you said it very eloquently and spot on. There's always something that has nothing to do with money in every one of these succession transition plans. Always. Um, I, I share that because I do a whole um, seminar on, you know, transition plans. And at the end of the day, what I'm teaching people is all of the wonderful technical pieces. You can have the best buy-sell agreement. You can have everything written out and dotted your I's and crossed your T's. And from a tax perspective and from a legal perspective, everything's in there, except that you forgot that you're dealing with people and people are irrational. And that's a really better way. Yeah. So I talk about it as people being irrational and that you've got to take their emotions into you know, into check as you're going through this. But what you said is there's always something that's not about money. And I think that's a, a better way of even saying, that, you know, that's just saying that the people have something vested that's in their mind that's driving them. And the, the other thing, the most important thing is keeping the relationship. Yes. And so sometimes, like we had tried to buy, her name was Estelle, Anna Estelle. We tried to buy Anna Estelle out many years before and it just didn't happen. And it kind of created some tension a little bit. <clears throat> and finally, I called one of the daughters over. She had three girls. And uh, we talked through it. And when we were doing this final buyout thing, so we own the land, the main production and store sit on, and we were 50-50 partners on the land. So that was something that wasn't in any like buy-sell agreement. That was just a separate deal. So we had an appraiser come. We thought the appraiser did it too high, but my husband, uh, we were talking and I was like, let's just pay it because I, that relationship with those three girls is so important. I do not want to lose that. And neither did he. We don't want to lose that relationship. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we've talked to them and the bakery is their bakery, even though their mother doesn't own it. They come in, they come in the back, they get the stuff. We've done weddings now. And it, it's just, um, we've had to put a few parameters on baked goods just because they were 14 people. Now we're over 40. So we had to put a few parameters around it and maybe some of the biggest vendors are Bobby, one of Bobby's kids. <laughs> it's more for they, the three girls. They're fine. You know, they don't really take advantage over advantage or whatever, but we put some parameters around it now. So if you want to give to your charity, then that's your deal. That's not our deal. If you're a hostess for a wedding shower, that's your deal. Not our deal. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Right. It's we'll, we'll support the immediate family and the, and your things, but we're not supporting the rest of the world. That's how, uh, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Got it. I, one of my favorite stories is I had a transition on a 65 year old company going from generation two to generation three. And it was a deal that was struck 10 years, five years before I got involved, maybe yeah, about five years before I got involved. So it was already etched in stone in a lot of people's minds, but it was very, very nebulous. There was only two or three things that they had agreed upon and they forgot to think about all of the other stuff. Okay. Like, um, like you know, cars and healthcare and 
Um, they had, you know, who owns this, you know, uh, they had a, in this circumstance, they had a, a pile of uh, goods that they couldn't sell anyplace else, but it was worth something. And, you know, so it was like <laughs> one generation thought, well, that should be with us. And the other, gen you know, so in, in long story short, they were, you know, G G2 was gifting for the most part to G3. That was the original plan as we're going through, but it was created before, you know, anybody else was involved. It was 10 years ago. New players are coming in in G3. The value of the business skyrocketed overnight. Um, right. And we, you know, there was a lot of things going on. And for the exiting generation, they were feeling like the word, they were feeling like there was a lot of entitlement happening. For the, for the incoming generation, they were feeling like there was a lot of promises made and you're not sticking to these promises. And they weren't, they weren't, they just weren't communicating. And it was me meeting with the third generation and explaining to them the pros and cons of all these conversations, looking at them and saying, if you were them, what might work for you? They crafted an email and sent a letter off to, you know, the exiting generation. And that email was the, the you know, the pinnacle of change. It, it really it allowed th those emotions, those non, you know, the, the non-financial pieces. It just allowed everybody to, ah, let's take down, let's take everything down. They love us and respect us and appreciate everything that we've done for them. They don't feel entitled and it allowed them to say, okay, they're willing to negotiate and talk about some things and opened up those doors. And sometimes somebody just has to step forward and say, hey, what if? And it takes some bravery to do that. You know, the, the ones that are trying to, get the business probably more so like you don't want to step on anyone's toes you want to respect them and it, it, you can you know it'd be a month and you just don't say anything I mean you just have to get enough nerve to do that yeah I, I call it entering the danger it's okay to enter the danger and and not know what the outcome is going to be you just gotta you, you know it's no different than any other circumstance, we do, we have no idea what somebody else is thinking or feeling. And so you're entering that danger because you, that's behind the closed curtain, you know, and you got to open that curtain up to find out what's there. And you have to understand it may not be your time to buy the business or, you know, the, that generation just may not be ready to sell, which is what we experienced with Anastel. You know, we went, you know, five years or so before, and then it was five years later before we finally did it. So, so now you look at the business and you and your husband own the business and you've already talked about the, the next transition is probably going to be to grow the business and, you know, eventually sell it. Is that, did, we talked about that. Um, what are some of the things that you're doing to prepare for that process today? Well, we started preparing for that process when we hired the business coach and we learned that we're terrible managers. So that was the beginning of the process. And we knew we had to work ourselves out of our jobs. And we really have done that. I mean, we are, I would say, pretty superfluous to the daily operation of the business. And uh, my husband, and I'm sorry he's not here and for your viewers, he's fishing, okay? <laughs> <laughs> it's a gorgeous day here and we are going to be working full-time till Christmas so he's fishing um 
but he can go fishing because we've done that. Yeah. And technically we don't have to help, you know, all the way through Christmas, but I like to do it. It's my time to really, everybody goes in the back and packs pies. It's a great time to really visit with everyone. I love it. So um, that's number one. You've got to make yourself superfluous. Sorry about that. You have to make yourself superfluous to the business. Yeah. We, we have a, a product, uh, an assessment called the owner dependence index. And you have to get yourself down to where at least 25%, you know, where the business, you know, 75% of the business runs without you. Um, at 50%, it's not enough. You're too dependent on you. That means if somebody is to purchase your business, then they have to come in and, and fill those gaps of that 25 of that 50%. And that's not what most people, most people aren't buying a business so that they have a job. They're buying a business as an investment. Well, some people buy it for a job. Of course, of course. I'm just saying, you know, in generally speaking, it, it makes you, let, let's put it this way. It makes you more attractive to more people if you don't have to do that. And I would say our business probably we're 95% uh, not us. Yeah. I'm the PR and my husband is the face of the bakery usually, uh, but he's fishing today. So, you know, he's in front of the camera. I, I have a couple of topics where I'll be in front of the camera, like I'm a breast cancer survivor. So in October, sometimes you'll see me in front of the camera. But um, those are things that anyone buying the business and they could hire my husband to still be the face of the business if they want. But I think I think that was the number one thing we've done to get ready for a sale. Now, the next thing is the growth. And you, it is so hard to find a place. We've been looking for a fifth place. And you do these LOIs. And then all of a sudden, they're like, eh, no. <laughs> So sometimes I, I turn in my business plan to, I, we did this business plan competition we were in and we came in second place. That was the best thing I ever did. And it was free. I'm really into free resources and it was free. And I use that business plan sometimes to convince landlords to lease to us. And one broker told me, she said that was like the best thing she'd ever seen. So, um, Anyway, we've been trying to find another place. It's not easy. Retail space right now is still a low percentage of vacancy, unlike office space. But unfortunately, with the economy being what it is, we think January, February, we're going to start seeing a lot of uh, second gen spaces pop up. Nice. If you're looking at the next, I, I, obviously, I think growth is probably one of your priorities. But if you were looking at the next 12 months, what would you say are your top three priorities? Be, you know, growth being one of them, but also your priorities. Mm. That's a hard question. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> growth, growth and getting uh, laws and policies passed that benefit small business. I'm kind of into that. I don't know. I don't know the answer. I don't answer that question. <laughs> what about in advance? So I don't have an answer. That's a, that's right. Um, in terms of pains and frustrations that you're dealing with right now, um, it, what are some of the pains and frustrations as a business owner that you and your husband are looking at? You know, right this moment. Well, my cup is always half full. 
my husband's is half empty. So if you ask this question to each of us, you, you get different answers. For me, nothing is a problem because I look at where we come from and we stand on the strong shoulders of survivors. What they went through was horrific. What I'm going through is inconvenient. Mm. And so I never say that we have really bad. I, I mean, I just can't make that comparison. Um, I mean, I, I, at one point, eggs were up 300%. That's a problem. That added an extra 100000 of expense to our P&L. $100,000 extra for the same eggs you were buying the year before. That's very frustrating, right. I think. <laughs> like, this is my biggest frustration right now. Okay, I'm wearing this shirt. It's a man's shirt, right? I And I hate it. And so my GM, we work for him. And he will not buy women's shirts. He only buys men's shirts. And so I decided last night, I might have to make an executive decision because there's five women that are customer facing and there's only two men that are. So I think we should buy all women's shirts and make the men <laughs> women's shirts. That is my biggest aggravation right now. That's great. I love that. You've got to keep life in perspective. I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. Um, you talked about the Goldman Sachs, um, what is it, 10,000 small businesses, right? You yeah. talked about hiring a business coach. Um, through that, I got, I, and I'm just and I'm extrapolating, I bet that you've probably read some books that were, you know, through one of those programs that were, you know, recommended. What are some of the, what are some of your top favorite business? Entrepreneurial. Books? Oh, it's so funny you asked that. I just happen to have one. Entrepreneurial Finance by Stephen Rogers. We have not heard of that book. Oh, I love this book. So as I mentioned, I have a degree in social work, a master's in consumer affairs. I made a D in geometry in high school. Math is not my strong point. Um, luckily, I don't balance the checkbooks at the bakery. I do it at home. And sometimes it's like when I do the credit card and it doesn't quite work out, I just write miscellaneous. You know? <laughs> so I just... I didn't understand when I did the, the Goldman Sachs program, that was in 2012. And so they gave us a quiz and it was like on financials. And if you didn't pass the quiz, you had to go to extra curricular clinic to try to learn about this. Well, only out of 19 people, that's how many were in my cohort, one person passed. He had a degree in finance, only one person. So I know that I'm not, I wasn't alone. Right. And I went, I did another program, um, inner city capital connections, which is where I heard Stephen Rogers. And I learned that if you don't understand business financials, you will not be successful. And some of these people, I noticed the most successful people and when I say successful is they make a business, they never turn a profit and they sell it for multiples of millions of dollars. How do you do that? I want to do that. And, 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 you know, we were making a profit. Okay. I can't do that. And, but that I learned in that program, those are the most successful people. So you better learn finance as much as you can, 
And there's still a lot. I don't understand T-bills and bonds. I just don't get that, okay? But I understand small business financials. And like one time we went to the bank, we were getting a loan for a new location. And um, I thought it, when we know the bank well, and I thought it was just meeting with the SBA person. And she said, I said, do I need a business plan? No, just, you know, you can bring your spreadsheet. I, I don't know what possessed me to do it. I made four copies of my big business plan. And I walk in with Tom or GM because I want him there because he's smarter than me and he can answer some of these financial questions. And there were like four people there in a conference room. And I had to make a pitch, which I learned how to do in these programs. And then every question they asked, I think, except for one, I answered. That's great. And I felt really good about that but there's still more to learn. And so now, like we used to go to bakery conventions and stuff, and we have people now that do that. But for me, those aren't the kinds of things that I wanna go to. Um, I'm on the host committee this week of something called Houston Dealmakers. It's a seminar conference. They go around to different cities. I don't know how they found my name, but I got free entry, so I took it. Because I wanna learn about these things. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to do now. I love it. For us, when I'm talking to business owners, um, I break it down into three pieces. One is developing that A player leadership team, which is Tom was your that person for you guys to, that really took it to the next level. Um, I think I applaud you for, for finding that and knowing that. Even though I have to wear men's shirts. Okay, go ahead. Even though you're wearing men's shirts. <laughs> Um, we, we talk a lot about you know, developing a culture of accountability by using scorecards and scoreboards and, and people, you know, really understanding the impact of the finances, the impact of sales, the impact of marketing and where do all those things go and what are the KPIs. And, you know, I, I believe that every business should have a scoreboard that at least the leadership team can, can see and be accountable for and, and help with. Um, and then you guys, you know, doing what you're doing with making sure that the culture inside of your business, you know, you, you keep a, a good, strong culture and you're looking at strategy and, and looking at those pieces to say, what do we do next and where do we go? Okay, let's talk about culture for a minute. So when I did the Goldman Sachs program, they had a, yeah, it's about the people. That was the name of the module. And uh, they asked about your corporate culture. Well, first of all, I don't consider us a corporation, but okay. And I said, I don't think we have a corporate culture. And then I realized, oh, we do. It's just toxic. I got it now. <laughs> so, so that actually became out of the, I learned a lot in the program, but that was something that we have worked on. It's constant. You have to work on that. And I really wanted that to change. And, and so now when we had the pandemic, a lot of my friends with small businesses, their employees wanted to be laid off because you could get, what was it? $600 a week or something like that, which was more than maybe they were making. Not one person asked to be laid off at Three Brothers Bakery, not one. And I said, we have finally achieved something. 
that not one of them asked. And it's still a work in progress and it always will be. I've had to fight uh, with Tom. We now offer some maternity leave, which we didn't do. Uh, my husband and I give everyone who's pregnant or getting ready to have a baby, some are men, a car seat. That's what we do for them. And don't drink the water at Three Brothers Bakery because you're going to get pregnant. <laughs> so many. It's like never ending. I can't, I think I've done five car seats this year and in a year and we have 75 employees. I mean, that's a pretty big percentage. That is a big percentage. <laughs> so don't drink the water at Three Brothers. But they, I love, I mean, building the culture and letting them know that you care about their family by buying a car seat. I think that's brilliant. I think that's brilliant. My husband, he came up with that. And before that, we didn't even do anything. I mean, I just think about it. It's just horrible the way we were. I don't know. I I can't make up for the past. I can only. But you, yeah. So let me give you some kudos, Janice. You went through and hired a business coach and that you started to change and you started to some do, to do some things and start to realize that we wanted to learn. And then you go through the, the Goldman Sachs 10,000 small businesses program and you grow some more from that and you continue to go to different events and network and, and put these things out there so that you're constantly learning. Here's what's really neat about what you, what you did is you can't go back and unlearn any of the things that you did. I mean, you, you could sit there and say, well, we're not, we're just not going to do it. But once you've, once you've poured that, you know, made space for, for you in that cup, it, it's, unche- you know, you, you, it's there forever. And so now you just take and multiply that. It's like compound interest. It's like, I learned this. Okay. Now I'm going to start doing that. Now I'm going to not stop doing what I was doing, but I'm going to add to that and then add to that. And look at what that has done for you. It was not something where the business coach came in and said, snap, okay, your fairy godfather, fairy godmother's here. And, you know, now everything's all better. It was a lot of work. Yeah, it was a lot of work from 2007 to 2023. And I just want to give you the kudos, you and your husband, for hearing the advice and, and understanding that, you know, at most of the time, most of the time, it's the people at the top, the CEOs, the owners of the business that are the biggest problems when we're biggest coaching. Problems. We were we were horrible. And I am so grateful for that experience. I just have to tell you, the business coach, his name was Doug, um, we really needed a vacation. And he we had just reopened not maybe six months before from Hurricane Ike. And he's like, y'all need to go on vacation. He babysat our business. We went on a cruise and he babysat our business. He wouldn't do it now because he's much bigger. (laughs) We were his biggest client at the time, but that was really, that was so great for us. And it was really nice of him. And he didn't charge us extra for babysitting the business either. So I really loved that. I don't know. Oh, that's great. We have a great team of people. And we want to keep those people. And so, um, sorry, my dog's, I'm at home, everyone, not the dog's not in the bakery. I would love to have the dogs in the bakery, but we can't do that. And he really, he made a huge difference in our life. And we now, we have 401k, health benefits, maternity, um, 
car seats. Yeah, you're, you're building, you're developing a culture that is a place where people want to be there. Um, you know, happy to come to work, happy to go home, right? I hope it stays. I mean, I have, we have not in the front, in the counter space, we have turnover. I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. You have kids in high school, college, they grow up, they become rocket scientists, you know, nuclear physicists. I mean, we have really, really, right. I want to start the Three Brothers Bakery Alumni Association because we have some pretty amazing, we've got lawyers and all these things, you know, so they're going to change. The production folks, pretty consistent. Okay. They're consistent. Uh, you're sitting on a panel in front of a room full of family business owners. What would you say are your one or two pieces of advice that uh, they ought to make sure that they follow up on? I'm glad you're asking that question because I'm on a panel Wednesday. <laughs> That's probably going to be a question. Number one, the relationships are the most important thing. Your family is the most important thing. And things may not work out quite the way you want. And you might have to give more of a compromise than you want. But never lose sight of what's really important in life. And that's family. And uh, let's see, something else. Well, I already told you, read your insurance policies. Okay. <laughs> work to get yourself out of the business. Work. So don't have a job. Own a business. Don't have a job. And get your pay and all of that below the line. So if you ever do sell, then anything below the line is pure profit to a buyer. And plus, you get some freedom finally by doing that. Oh, and then if you're looking for a holiday gift for any of your clients, our award-winning pecan pies make lovely gifts and um here we go. <laughs> love it. Love it. And so it's threebrothersbakery.com, the number three, not the word. You can do both. And then do shop to ship or go to our corporate gifts because you get a discount if you do over a certain amount. So we would love to help you every year. And I don't know what else to say. I really love I really enjoy visiting with you though. Yeah, this was this has been fabulous. Thank you so much, Janice, for sharing your company, Three Brothers Bakery Story with us. Really appreciate it. Ah, oh, thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. This has been the Family Biz Show. I'm Michael Columbus with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. And we have been speaking with Janice Jucker from Three Brothers Bakery. Um, what a fabulous show. Really appreciate your time. And make sure that you tune in for the next episode of the Family Biz Show. Thank you, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to The Family Biz Show. We hope you've gained valuable insights and practical tips for running a successful family business. Remember, managing a family business can be both rewarding and challenging, but with dedication, communication, and a clear vision, you can create a thriving enterprise that supports your family and community for generations to come. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. We'd love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. Don't forget to follow Family Wealth and Legacy on LinkedIn and Facebook for more resources and updates on upcoming episodes. And most importantly, keep the conversation going within your own family business. Remember, you're not alone in this journey and we're here to support you every step of the way. Thank you again for tuning in to the Family Biz Show and we'll see you next time.
The content presented is for informational and educational purposes. The information covered and posted are views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily those of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Michael Columbus is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Financial Affiliates and other fine companies. Family Wealth and Legacy LLC is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.